Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder that has been building and scaling companies since he was 19 years old. And we're talking about 30 years of back-to-back building, scaling, financing, exiting. His last company, he exited twice. So really incredible journey. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Stefan Ederborn. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. So originally you were born and raised outside of Stockholm. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Like most kids, I guess, uh, went to school, uh, was heavily into sports, anything from athletics to soccer to uh, a lot of skiing in my life that later turned me towards uh, starting POC. I spent, you know, life in, in Sweden uh, until it was, uh, I was 15 years old, moved to, to Brazil for a couple of years and then went back again. And my mother potentially, you know, guided me towards sports uh, in, in, a, in a, you know, evident way, being a, a gymnastic teacher. And she brought us to, to different, you know, activities uh, since we're tiny, tiny babies. And she had a strong influence on me. And then I realized, you know, after having been through, through you know, 12th grade that I, I was too uh, impatient to actually continue my academic potential uh, career going forward and started my own business built on passion. And passion has always been the reason for starting different different businesses on my side. And you got started at 19, but even before that, at 15, you moved to Brazil. I mean, that yep. means new friends, new environment, a ton of uncertainty that I'm sure shaped up who you are today. So how was that for you? No, I, I, I think you're, you're right. And for many years, I think the Brazilian experience was very evident to my personality and, and my approach. But I think that I gained a few things. Of course, on the social kind of uh, palette, just as you say, meeting new friends and, and getting acquainted in a new culture with whatever that means. But I would say that, that I've always done global businesses uh, and I never, ever kind of limited my own initiative uh, to a restricted area. It's always been, uh, you know, for everyone everywhere. And, and the hesitation that sometimes is, is something that I, I'm, you know, I, I, I experience with others uh, by by starting smallish in your your own kind of safe zone or context uh, was never anything I ever considered. And I think that's thanks to my Brazilian experience that kind of opened up everything. And I was like, you know, it, it, with it, it borders and, 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 and cultures and geography was not a limit. Uh, so that, that has played a strong role. Now, in your early years as an entrepreneur, I mean, you you did two companies that uh, that really got you going. You know, one was in importing, the other one was in exporting. So the first one was CNBI, and then the other one was CBI. So very similar, you know, the names too. But but what were you doing there? What what, what was exactly what you were doing? It's it's a long story actually. For some strange reason, I really got into a 17th century uh, architecture and and style and design, and uh, I had a super fast journey from those from the late 1600s until the early 1980s uh, and, uh, you know, just just absorbed everything I, I, I could read and, and understand and visited castles and, and whatnot. And 
that that process went on for maybe half a year. But it was a true learning process that I've been able to utilize throughout my career later in life to try and grasp what kind of shapes, preferences during different times in history and applying that to today and to tomorrow. And, you know, again, realizing that we're, we're all kind of, you know, we're victims of our times. It's not ourselves creating the preferences and so forth, but the kind of uh, changes in, in in anything from 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 political, cultural, innovation, industrial, and so forth aspects, and how they kind of are you know bonded together and creating the, you know the, the the space for different ideas to to become relevant during different times, and that is something that I've been able to capitalize on throughout my whole career. And I ended up in the early 1980s and realized it's it's with the contemporary design scene and what was going on there where I had my biggest passion. And I kind of moved on from there, starting businesses. Now, what did you really learn from these, you know, two first experiences? It gave me the kind of confidence to actually let my 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 mind and my heart lead me, lead myself in terms of of of, of you know, not being afraid of taking risk, uh, just getting into it and kind of building something organically or dynamically, as 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 even though they had. You know, I've been increasingly better at, at defining targets and so forth, of course. But moving to jump on board on something, a vessel that has a certain direction, not knowing exactly how to navigate, but uh, being able to promote the idea of, 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 of uh, you know, uh, not forcing every challenge or what would the obstacles that always come, but just getting on board and, and, and going with the flow and then dealing with the issues and problems as they, they, they show up. I think that gave me, uh, at an early stage, some kind of a willingness and maybe, you know, the exploration of, of, of not knowing exactly how this journey will, will develop, uh, which is exciting. And, and it gave me the, uh, the nerve and the satisfaction to really enjoy what I was doing. Now, in this case, I mean, after having done it a few times, you already knew. And, and as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So I guess in your case, why did you decide to go after the second experience or the second journey as an entrepreneur? Why did you go into consulting, you know, on, on, on branding and, and communications? Why not going at it again? What, what, what happened there? No, that that was really interesting. Uh, I had this experience uh, at the t- at the time. I was I was I had come from you know working with international contemporary design, and suddenly with the economic collapse in the early nineties, everything changed in terms of of values from a global perspective, and you know against the the the, the kind of uh, aspirations of the the late eighties. What was it was all about? You know, it was luxurious and expensive and complicated. And suddenly, due to the economic situation, values changed towards durability and simplicity and functionality and smartness and so forth. A number of topics that are associated to Scandinavian design in general. So I kind of used that insight in terms of how changes actually changes values and aspirations and decided to export Swedish contemporary design instead of, 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 of importing international, you know, or pretty much Central European design to Sweden. So the opportunity made me go to IKEA, telling them that, that that hey guys, this is the greatest opportunity to c- kind of reclaim your independence of not, you know, leaving aside what has been the story of, of IKEA being a copycat, not being independent enough, bring along a, a new generation of really talented young Swedish designers, and you know, serve a platform and start developing 
you know, uh, independent uh, Swedish design from a uh, an IKEA perspective. And I, I convinced him and I got the, the assignment. And uh, on par with that, I was doing my own uh, furniture collections that I was exporting. But the, the, the leverage of with, with IKEA and, and what could be done with that, you know, type of investments with, you know, again, what I was doing was not very industrial and, and small scale. But with IKEA, I could develop ideas of, you know, injecting plastic or, or doing complex metal molding stuff and so forth that there was no chance that I'd be able to finance myself. So it was a learning process for me where I got into a uh, an environment where there was, uh, you know, console capacity and really working industrially with, with, with product development projects with the idea of, you know, there were ideas in, in you know, philosophical, uh, ideological, innovative and so forth associated to that. but that was how I kind of went from small-scale business into large-scale business with the resources needed to really make, you know, a, a difference in terms of impact and, 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 and true, true, you know, innovative products. So then let's talk about POC, because POC is uh, really the next uh, company that, uh, that you came about. So how did the idea knock on your door and how did you decide that it was the right one to execute on? Yeah, so, so basically, I had been doing this consultancy business for a number of years. IKEA was the starting point, and then I worked a lot with, with Finland and Scandinavian glassware and, and, and pottery and, and, and stuff like that. Super exciting. But I, I got to the point where my, my, the common denominator throughout my career has been purpose. So, so I felt like I'm not really you know, using my time to, to do the best I can, I can in terms of bringing purpose. And... Throughout my career, and again, I started as a, as a kid being really, really a lot into sports, and I, I was ski, skiing and ski racing a lot. So that was really, you know, close to my heart. And uh, when I had my first two sons, um, Carl and Nils, I, you know, took them to the slope, and I was back there, you know, training and 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 and, and racing gates with them. And and uh, being a father in that sense, I was really nervous about the fact that they were training giant slalom at high speeds passing huge trees just a meter away and so forth with with protection that was far from, you know, the level of, 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 of what they are these days, uh, 20 years later. Anyhow, that was one of the main triggers that, hey, you know, I know product development. Uh, I need to do something to, you know, to decrease my stress for, for my, my, my kids and their friends uh, skiing. And on par with that, a number of things happen in society. I'd say that still uh, for another 50 or 100 years, the most vital trend in society among consumers is is the fact that we're all looking to for for for, for you know well-being, health, safety, and stuff like that. And that's running a number of different businesses, whether it be gated communities or insurances or health food or whatever. And um, what happened was that when the carving ski made its entry on the ski side 15 years ago, people started skiing on you know and with the ability of carving. And the, the 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 average speed on the, in the slope increased by thirty percent or something, and therefore people started crashing. It was evident that there was a risk in actually running into each other on the slope. And the third aspect, that there are a few others too, but you know that are vital to mention is the fact that the whole X Games community was evolving thanks to the uh, alternative Olympics, with people you know on snowboards and skis jumping you know crazily, and and in that sense, if they crashed. Uh, they needed the the protection to survive, so that kind of influenced the whole generation, you know, wanting to use the helmet to be part of that that that, that culture. That said, those parameters were all pointing towards the fact that everyone 
you know, would use a helmet uh, on the ski slope in 10 years from then, back then. And when I was trying to raise money with, you know, the VC firms when I started this business, telling these guys that this is what I'm doing. These are the clear signs. It's actually going to happen and it's going to happen fast. The current protection in the market is really poor because the only one using protection or helmets is either kids or downhill skiers. So there's no no real market to trigger the level of, of, of quality in that sense. And people were like, hey, I'm never going to wear helmets. Forget it and so forth. And I can tell you that, that my level of pride these days when I meet these patronizing, a little older guys than me uh, that did say no in the beginning and, and you know, waiting to, to, to get a lift chair in, in wherever it might be. And in the best of cases, they, they, they are using helmets, but in the best of cases, wearing a folk helmet is, is truly satisfying. So that's how I went into that. And the mission of POC was, uh, or still is, uh, to do the best we could to possibly save lives and reduce consequences of accidents. So we started developing the product from scratch. And my, my, my philosophy in that sense is the proof is in the pudding. Make sure to, to don't make any you know, shortcuts or, or, or don't cheat. Make sure that you do it the best you can. And from there, we, together with competences in, in anything from neurology to, to spinal you know, medicine and so forth, uh, we were able to actually bring the level of protection to new levels. And that was the reason to, for, for, for a, an eventual global success. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. In this case, I mean, you're talking about global success. I mean, we're talking about over 45 countries. I mean, incredible growth. But one thing that, uh, that is true here is that in this company with POC, you were able to have access to the full cycle as an entrepreneur. I mean, you, uh, you know, did the whole rodeo, the whole roadshow with money, raising money, and then also with the acquisition. Uh, but not only once, twice. I mean, that's like, uh, you don't come across that often. So so tell us about the acquisition process. What happened the first time? Why did you, how did you come up, you know, again, with a second acquisition? And most importantly, what did you learn from going through a process like that? Yeah. So the, in the first place, we didn't really plan to, 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 um, to sell the company. It was a bit painful, you know, 
I, I went to the bank every year, super happy about the fact that we had grown the, the business another 50%. And the bank was increasingly disturbed by the fact that the risk when it comes to supporting our working capital needs were going, you know, skyrocketing. And together with that, our, our, our investors were a little too shallow in terms of, 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 of you know, uh, cash accessibility to promote, you know, bridge loaning and, 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 and dynamically moving us forward. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, we're talking about 2008, you know, 9, 10, 11 here. And, uh, you know, in total, we only, you know, raised 10 million US dollars, establishing a market share globally of 10%, and then also entering the cycling side of things, which is now actually the majority of sales with with with, with Bog. But anyhow, we got to the point where we didn't have enough cash in the system. And at the same time, big companies started knocking on our door. And we had a number of huge, you know, from from consumer lifestyle and fashion to sports. And we ended up selling to, to um, Black Diamond, Utah-based uh, backcountry, uh, you know, climbing company. And I think that we, we truly had this, this uh, mutual respect for each other. It was all about, you know, safety and quality and on their side, making sure that people wouldn't fall off, you know, fall off the a cliff. And in our sense, you know, uh, on the ski and, and cycling side. What happened was that they were a, a Nasdaq uh, IPO company. I think that that uh, ourselves, having been independent and being super transparent about what we're doing and the pace of innovation that we're doing, and 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 opinion making and PR being you know key aspects of our our traction going forward and and creating interest and and, and aspiration was totally shut down by the the publicly traded climate that we went into. So, you know, it went on for a couple of years and, and we got to the point where we, you know, both realized that uh, they were holding us back and we felt that we were being held back. So we decided to try and find a new owner. So I was assigned again to 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 lead the, 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 uh, the next round and uh, spent spring in 2015 of, 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 of uh, you know, pitching book uh, and eventually selling it to a company named InvestCorp, which is a London-based, um, it's a luxury premium brand portfolio company. And I would say that it turned out really well, even though I'm not with Puck anymore, they have a much uh, better, uh, you know, uh, investor backing the company uh, to promote the, the dynamics of, of Puck. So, in the end, that came out as a beautiful kind of solution for something that ended up not really being perfect. So I guess um, after going through the acquisition with the same company twice, right, what have you learned that if you were to do another m a process or another m a transaction, what would you do differently or what would you absolutely, you know, treat as a must to implement? I, I think that, that what I've learned is, is, is a number of different things uh, that, that I hate wasting money. I'm 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 kind of trying to be smart about the spending and so forth, and not to stupidly exaggerate. But I think that if I had the kind of toolbox uh, in between um, banks, uh, investors, and ourselves being the operation these days, I would have uh, been able to keep the company much longer and promoted additional investments from investors together with, with a, a much more lubricated kind of relation with the bank. And uh, therefore, having you know, been able to, to, to stick, hang along to, 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 uh, to our, our business another, whatever, three, four, five years before 
getting to a point of, of a larger acquisition by someone else and therefore having been able to accelerate the, the, the success of Pock even further. So again, uh, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's walking the walk and talking the talk. And I do that much better these days than I did in the beginning because I had no experience. I had never sold the company before. So, uh, I mean, what, what, what may be defined as intuition is, is something based on, on, on experience. And my intuition based on experience, again, uh, uh, make me uh, a, a lot more confident th- these days before deciding on, 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 on uh, topics in relation to mergers or acquisitions and so forth. So, again, I'd say experience makes you, you know, it's, it's, it's worthwhile listening to, to what you've been through because it, it, it will uh you know support your level of efficiency and relevancy and obviously i mean the outcome on the second transaction it was 65 million so i mean building a company from nothing to to an exit of 65 million is is really amazing so in this case i mean you you keep going so so what happened there with cake because cake is the next baby yeah 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 no what happened was that uh you know i'm not the motorcycling guy myself but i happen to be in the motorcycling space right now and i've learned to ride motorcycles and i love it but you know normally i would be someone who'd be walking in the street being disturbed by someone roaring by you know i'm like don't disturb me so there was never ever any any romancing but what happened was when when we were exhibiting with cake or with in, in in munich i ran into an electric bike for the first time maybe 10 years ago and um I was absorbed by, you know, the idea of getting out there without disturbing or without polluting. So I got one of those bikes. And two summers later, I had 10 of those or 15, really, uh, of those bikes in my garage at my country house uh, and uh, just enjoying it with no intention of starting a business. It was like a lot of fun. I had friends riding these bikes. And, and uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's cool to realize that whether it was a... Uh, know world champion mx guy or or a young woman for the first time trying these bikes they all kind of loved it from different perspectives the 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 the, the pros went back and said hey Stefan, it's amazing it's more like skiing powder in the woods without the need for snow or or, or, or a slope and young women you know with with without the need for for clutching or changing gears and just throttling and keeping balance and without the scary noise uh they jumped on these bikes and 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 drove away really you know cautiously and got back to me after 10 minutes sliding in front of me with the biggest smile saying hey Stefan this is the most amazing thing I've done in my life and then I realized that this technology is going to flip the whole motorcycle motorcycling you know market upside down and then together with you know additional uh, you know uh, uh, insights or, or, or in general just observing how urban transportation is changing for different reasons and what has been values and vision is now becoming uh, policies, policies and lawmaking and regulations. The market for electric vehicles is, of course, booming. And again, when I tried to convince the, the, the investor market uh, in 2016 that it was going to happen, they were like, ah, we'll see. We don't need to convince anyone you know, uh, anymore. And we have a dual track with consumer products and, and business-to-business products. And I can tell you that the business-to-business side is growing super fast right now. I'd say that we're in the perfect storm. If I had this discussion with you six months ago, I would have said that our business-to-business customer is a short-haul urban uh, uh, transportation company, which has a strong sustainability orientation. Today, I would say, unless that same company has a fossil-free solution, within the next 24 months, they're going to be out of business. So it's not about values and, and ambitions anymore. It's about legislation and regulation. 
Paris is ahead. Berlin is following. All cities in, in, in Holland have decided to exclude the car. So it's not about diesel and gasoline anymore. Cars are simply being banned from the cities. And then you can walk, you can, you can use an electric uh, uh, bicycle, of course. You can ride the bicycle. You can use a moped or a motorcycle if it's electric and so forth. So I think that it's not only going to be two-wheeled uh, motorcycles and mopeds. There's going to be a vast variation, but it's got, the, the two-wheeler is going to uh, skyrocket in terms of market growth in the coming years. So it's, it's, it's really a new uh, situation in that sense. We were expecting it to happen. We didn't know when, but it started moving really fast during 2021. And, and, and beautiful bikes as well, I have to say. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask you is uh, how you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised today? About $75 million. And how does it work? Because typically, you know, for, you know, for the tech, you know, hyper growth, you know, that, uh, that yeah. maybe like the listener, listeners are used to, you know, is probably a different path. I mean, in this case, it's, it's probably capital intensive too. So how is it different from the traditional tech business to raise money for something like this? I think that we, we're in a very interesting, uh, interesting paradigm uh, when it comes to uh, the focus of investments because until now, uh, the tech investments have been attractive because they're low when it comes to, to when there's no real capex related to it. While uh, the investments related to what we're doing, building a, a vehicle industry is pretty much the opposite. But I think that being able to promote, promote sustainability, both from a, a business perspective and from a, uh, an, an environmental perspective, we can see how our space and, 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 uh, and associated spaces are now being promoted uh, in a much better way. I, I'd say that the acceptance of, of that we're in an era of investments uh, where the companies uh, are in need for a, a large capex is actually something that has occurred in the, the last, I'd say, 18 to 24 months. Uh, and I think it has to do with, with the obligation towards the environment to a large extent where we need to invest in, in, in anything from hydro to solar to, uh, to, 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 um, to wind and so forth and the infrastructure surrounding that if we are to get rid of the coal and oil dependence. Now, imagine, Stefan, that you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where... You know, the mission and vision of Cake is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, I think that that world looks, uh, I, I'd say that, and I must say that we would never pound our chest saying, look at us, uh, we're sustainable because we're doing electric. There's so many challenges going on, uh, you know, in parallel in terms of, 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 of chemicals and, you know, lithium and cobalt and so forth. Uh, we have the issue with uh, oil and, and, and gas being imported from, 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 from to a large extent from, from Russia these days that will potentially promote the, the aspect of electric vehicles and so forth. But to be honest, uh, an electric vehicle uh, is just as bad as a combustion engine vehicle today. But due to the, the, the pace of innovation and, and competence being invested in this space, in 10 years, it's going to be a, a vast difference. And vehicles will be super clean in, in comparison to what the situation is today. So I think that in the best of cases, we have inspired the market for a faster change towards fossil-free transportation. And I'd say that we will also have inspired the market, whether it's our product or other products, to actually leave a car or leave something else in terms of the transportation side to actually uh, use the, 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 uh, the, the, the fun, efficient, and practical uh, use of two-wheeled motorized electric vehicles.
Now, if I was to, let's say, put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time and I give you the opportunity, Stefan, of having a sit down with that 19-year-old Stefan that is thinking about launching a business because that 19-year-old is incredibly impatient and he wants to do something out of his own. Imagine you were able to give that younger Stefan one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So I'd say that whatever your decision is in life, make sure to support, uh, uh, you know, the, um, your passions. And it doesn't matter what you're interested in because the beauty of passion is that your ability to, to absorb and educate yourself in that same category of space is amazing. So eventually, from one day to another, you wake up and you realize that I've become a specialist in my field just by the, the eagerness and the passion for that topic or subject. And when you establish that kind of position, you're also much clearer in terms and sober in terms of uh, how to navigate in that space. And eventually, you get the ability of actually building a business if you want to make, you know, develop a business. That not, um, that's not a must. You may become a, a politician or a leader of an organization or whatever it might be. But sticking to your love and promoting that and 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 and, and being a bit stubborn in, in 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 with that and staying with it will open a world of opportunities. So that would be my message. I love it. So Stefan, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn, I'd, I'd say that's 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 my my most uh, that's where I I spend uh, at least thirty five minutes a day, uh, just speaking to people from everywhere around the world and try to be as capable as I can responding in the most, uh, you know, in, in a respectful and, and, and hopefully meaningful way. Amazing. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.